Um, open up your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 17. In your books will be on lesson number 111. Lesson called Two Returns because we're going to be talking about the return of a leper and the return of the Lord. <laughs> he might seem like he's late, but he'll be right on time. Whoa. Let's uh, ask the Lord's blessing on our time together. Father God, we thank you that... Uh, that you are right on time, that our that your thoughts are so much higher than our thoughts, that your ways are so much higher than your our ways, that the heavens are higher than the earth. And Father, we thank you that you are sovereign, and that you are sufficient, and that you are our Savior. And Father, we also now pray that uh, you would quiet our minds and hearts. Thank you for this extra special blessing we've had this morning. And uh, Lord, now we just pray that your word would not return unto you void, but that it would accomplish the purpose for which you send it out. And we pray the Holy Spirit would have his will and way in every heart here. And we pray in the blessed name of the one who is the resurrection and the life, Jesus Christ. Amen. After the Lord's very brief stay in Bethany, just long enough to perform a life restoration miracle out of Lazarus's tomb, we had learned over in John 11:54 that he had withdrawn. He didn't stay around. Martha might have invited him for a feast at their home and a celebration, but I don't think he stayed. He withdrew with his men to the wilderness area of Ephraim. You can look in John 11:54 and see that. Ephraim was approximately 15 miles north of Jerusalem. He had absolutely no intention of going into Jerusalem, and Bethany was only two miles from Jerusalem, until it was his appointed time to enter into that city which would be the Passover, which is probably somewhere around two weeks from where we are in our life of Christ study. He would, in the meantime, spend every available minute with his men, teaching them valuable lessons through his miracles, and one of them we will look at this morning, the miraculous healing of ten lepers. He would also teach his men through his prophetic announcements, two of which we will look at this morning, and, of course, through his lifestyle example before them, and his many parables he will yet speak, and, the, and sermons that he will yet give. He uh, now apparently had decided to go back up to the border of Galilee so that he would then continue his journey to Jerusalem with a large group of Galilean pilgrims who would be coming from Galilee, heading down south to, uh, to go to Jerusalem to celebrate the mandatory annual feast of the Passover. So he's on his way to Jerusalem. We learned that quite a while ago, but he... he has quite a detour in getting there. He was in Perea. He heads over to Bethany to raise Lazarus from the tomb. Then he goes up to Ephraim, and now he heads up to the border of Galilee and Samaria, probably joining his family and friends as they then head south to come to Jerusalem for the Passover. And it was then at a certain village, we don't know what village because we're not told, somewhere along the border of Galilee and Samaria that the Lord Jesus was called upon for mercy by ten lepers. And this is where we find the next recorded event in the earthly life of our wonderful Savior. And by the way, only Luke was inspired to give us the only two specific leprous cleansings that we have in the Gospels were performed by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we do know that many lepers were cleaned under his ministry. Several times it will say that the lepers were brought to him and they were cleansed. But we only have two specific 
uh, cleansing miracles where we're given the details of the lepers who were cleansed. And one of them was uh, way back in lesson number 22. I guess you'd have to go all the way back to the Life of Christ 1 book, which I don't know how many years ago was that, four or five years ago. I've lost count, but a long time ago when we discussed Luke 5 and the first recorded cleansing of a leper. And that man, we were told, was full of leprosy, which would mean that he was in the latter stages of leprosy. He didn't have long to go. And he was cleansed by the Lord actually touching him. Now, the man came to him, I believe, already as a believer, already having been cleansed on the inside because he called him Lord and he said, I know that you can clean me. I know that you can just say the word and I'll be cleansed. And the Lord did touch him, which was amazing because normally if you touched a leper, you would be the one who was defiled. You would be the one who would be contaminated. That's why they were the untouchables. No one touched lepers, but the Lord touched him and communicated his purity to the leper. It's an incredible miracle. That's the first detailed uh, recording that we have of a leper being cleansed by the Lord Jesus Christ. And the second detailed incident of a leprous cleansing miracle is found here in Luke 17. You're opened up to Luke 17, right? Did I tell you that? Where 10 lepers were cleansed with no touching involved. No touching involved. And I thought about, you know, the Lord doesn't always perform miracles in the same way. He's not a genie. You can rub the lamp and he'll always do it the same way. First time he touched the man, and I I wondered if it was because that man was already cleansed on the inside, side, and these ten weren't. He didn't touch them, but they uh, they were cleansed as as they went. We'll see. But it was from a distance. Now you all know, I'm sure, that leprosy in the Bible is an illustration of the work of sin. It is the outward visible effect on the body of sin upon the soul. In other words, leprosy is God's way of showing us you know, with a visual picture, how horrible sin appears to him. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever seen a leper because we really don't have leprosy prevalent around us like they did back in Bible times, but it's a very, very ugly. I'll read a description of what it looked like. But to God, what does sin look like? We can't see sin. I mean, we can see the outward manifestations of sin, but we can't see what sin looks like to God in the heart. But to him, it is very, very ugly. And leprosy on the outside shows us what God sees, how God sees sin. It's horrible. The sinful spiritual condition of the entire nation of Israel at the time of Christ is seen in the fact that there were lepers throughout the the nation. Actually, there were lepers throughout the world. We today have lepers in um, third world countries. It still is not a curable disease, but it can be held in check. So... Um, and a girl yesterday who's a nurse told me that figs are the, uh, the um, they, they smash up figs and that's the, um, the yeah, but that's, that's the, uh, the cure that they have found. Not the cure, but it holds leprosy in check. And I thought, well, I'd never heard that before. That's interesting because figs are a biblical fruit. So. <laughs> Oh, but anyway, we can, the spiritual condition of Israel can be seen in the fact that there were lepers throughout the nation. Lepers up in Galilee, lepers in Samaria, lepers in Judea. But there are only three recorded lepers in the New Testament scriptures who not only received physical 
cleansing, but also the much more important spiritual cleansing of their souls. Now, I know I just told you there's only two recorded incidents where we have the details, but we do know of a third leper who was cleansed. We don't know the details of his cleansing, but we know that he was. And I'll talk about that in a minute. But it's interesting to me as I was looking at these three recorded incidents of lepers being cleansed that one was up in Galilee. This was early in the Lord's ministry back in Luke chapter 5 when he healed his, cleansed his first leper, that man who came to him and he touched him. And uh, and he and he was not only truly cleansed on the outside, but he was also truly cleansed on the inside. Because as I said, he was a, I believe he was a saved man. Then in the center of Israel, where we are today in our study, we're right there on the border of Galilee and Samaria. So we're in the center of the country of Israel, where ten lepers were cleansed. Only one of them we will see was also cleansed on the inside. And now the third, the third recorded incident where we don't know the details, but we do know that a man was saved down in Judea, the southern province of Israel, not only cleansed on the outside of his leprosy, but also cleansed on the inside. And does anybody know who I'm talking about? We know he was a Judean because he lived in Bethany. Simon, Simon, Simon the leper. Now, he hosted a dinner. Well, actually, Martha was the hostess at the dinner, but the dinner was at Simon the leper's house. And Jesus attended, and that's where Mary of Bethany anointed the Lord's feet. Now, we can assume that Simon was no longer a leper. They refer to him as Simon the leper because he had been a leper, but he wouldn't have people there at his house if he was still a leper because that law said they had to be, they had to live outside the city. So we know somewhere along the line, Jesus had healed him and he had Jesus at his home. So we know he was a saved man. So isn't it interesting? Lepers throughout the nations, you know, that tells us the spiritual condition of Israel at the time of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were a sinful nation symbolized by the leprosy everywhere. But here and there, there would be a person who would be cleansed, saved. One up in Galilee. This one today we're going to look at was a Samaritan. One in Samaria, the middle of the country. And Simon the leper down from Judea. Isn't that interesting? just thought I'd throw that out for you. Now you wonder, am I ever going to read the text? Yes, right now. Let's look at Luke 17, verses 11 to 19. The miracle before us is the physical cleansing of ten lepers, but the spiritual cleansing of one. The one who thankfully returned to the Lord and praised him and worshipped him. All right, let's look at verse 11. And it came to pass, as he, Jesus, went to Jerusalem, that he passed through the midst... And that would mean the border of Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered into a certain village, there met him ten lepers that, ten men that were lepers, which stood afar off. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said unto them, Go show yourselves unto the priests. And it came to pass that as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back and with a loud voice glorified God and fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a what? Samaritan. And Jesus answering said, were there not ten cleansed? But where are the the nine? You could title this lesson, where are the nine? (laughs) There are not found that return to give glory to God, save this stranger. 
And he, Jesus, said unto that one Samaritan former leper, Arise, go thy way, thy faith hath made thee whole. And literally it means in the Greek, thy faith hath saved thee. Physically, it is difficult to think of any condition that would be more miserable back in the days of the first century than what is today known as Hansen's disease, leprosy. And the word leprosy in the Greek means scaly because the skin actually became very scaly feeling. It was the most dreaded disease in Bible times. It was literally like a living death. One man, L.S. Huzenda, in a book entitled Unclean, Unclean, gives us this description of leprosy. He says, quote, The disease which we today call leprosy generally begins with pain in certain areas of the body. So initially, the one who got leprosy would feel some pain. But quickly, numbness follows. Soon, the skin in such spots loses its original color. Instead of being flesh-colored, the skin would turn white. It gets to be thick, glossy, and scaly. As the sickness progresses, the thickened spots become dirty sores and ulcers due to poor blood supply. The skin, especially around the eyes and the ears, begins to bunch up with deep furrows between the swelling so that the face of the afflicted individual begins to resemble that of a lion, a deep, you know, I've got bags under my eyes, but not, not like that would be, and around the ears, and it just starts to sag. Fingers drop off or are absorbed because, you know, there's no feeling in, in, in your body, so you, you need feeling so that you can keep yourself from being burned and injured, but they could touch something hot and not even know it's hot, and so eventually fingers drop off or are absorbed. Toes are affected the same way, he says. Eyebrows and eyelashes drop off. By this time, one can see that the person in this pitiful condition is a leper. By a touch of the finger alone, one can also feel it, because the skin is like a kind of like a lizard, you know, it's scaly. One can even smell it, for the leper emits a very unpleasant odor. Moreover, in view of the fact that the disease-producing agent frequently also attacks the larynx, the voice box, the leper's voice acquires a grating quality, kind of like I sounded a few weeks back, this real raspy. His throat becomes hoarse, and you can not only now see, feel, and smell the leper, but you can hear his rasping voice. And if you stay with him for some time, you can even imagine a peculiar taste in your mouth, probably due to the odor. End of quote. Awful. Awful sound. It was universally believed throughout the world that only God could heal leprosy, as he had done once with a woman and once with a man. Who was the woman? He, sm- he smote her with leprosy because she criticized her brother Moses. Yes, it was Miriam. And uh, once a man was healed of leprosy, and that was through God used his human instrument, Elisha, to cleanse a Syrian military leader whose name was Naaman. Right, very good. Leprosy was such a major problem that Moses was given by God extensive instruction on how to deal with it. Leviticus 13.46 states that the leper was to dwell separated from everyone else. 
except other lepers. So they would actually have leper colonies outside the camp. And, you know, initially it would be outside the tabernacle, but then when they no longer had a tabernacle, the lepers had to live outside a city or outside a village, you know, um, outside the walls or the gates of a, a city or village. They couldn't live within the city. If a leper was even found within a city or within a village, he was to immediately be given 40 lashes of a whip, which would probably do him in. He was, you know, sick anyway. They would usually stop at 39 because that'd be just short of killing somebody. But the leper was to be given 40 lashes with the whip. Lepers were outcasts, no doubt about it. They were the outcasts of society, and the law made them keep at least six feet from any other person. And if the wind was blowing, they had to stay 150 feet away. They were untouchables. They were to always wear black, which was the color of death, and their clothing had to be torn. And um, their heads had to be left uncovered, Their hair would turn white, their skin would turn white, and their hair would turn white, and therefore they would be easily visible to other people. So they were not to cover their heads so people could see that they were a leper. And they had to put um, a covering on their lips whenever they spoke. And if they saw somebody approaching them, what were they to do? They had to shout out, unclean, unclean so that people would get out of their way and avoid them. And that's why we find these lepers, these ten lepers here, standing afar off, Luke 17, 12. And notice, too, that they had to shout together. They had to join their raspy, grating voices together in order to gain the Lord's attention. That's because their larynxes were affected. They didn't have strong voices, so together they had to shout out, you know, to gain his attention. And added, think about this, added to all their misery of being totally... Um, separated from their loved ones and their friends and their society and not able to participate in their their religion, they would be desynagogued, um, was the added pain of everyone looking at them thinking, you know, I wonder what sin he committed. Because we know Pharisaic theology of that day was that if someone had leprosy, and they got this because Miriam was struck divinely with leprosy for criticizing God's servant, Moses. And um, uh, King Uzziah was stricken with leprosy because he tried to um, perform perform the job of a priest. And he was a king, and you can't do both. If you're a king, you can't perform the job of a priest. And so he was stricken with leprosy. And then, remember Elisha's servant, Gehazi? He was stricken with leprosy because he was greedy. Um, So I understand why they would say, you know, if someone has leprosy, well, God is divinely smiting him with a disease because of some sin in their life. But we know that 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 wasn't always true, but that was their... So added to that would be the fact that everybody looked at them and thought, I wonder what sin they committed. And I also thought, you know, it really, if that was the case, wouldn't all of the Pharisees and scribes and all the religious rulers be smitten with leprosy for criticizing God's servant? They certainly criticized God's servant, God's son. If anybody should have had leprosy, it would have been them. And for greed, you know. Anyway, the pagan nations, which did not have God's word, they did not have such strict laws concerning leprosy, which was why Naaman, who was a Syrian commander-in-chief, still carried on in his military position, even though he was a leper. You can read about him in 2 Kings 5. It's a fantastic story. I love that story, how he had dipped seven times in the Jordan River. Anyway, um, he 
I often wondered, you know, why was he allowed to still be a military? It's because he was a, they were pagans and they didn't have the laws of Moses. You see, uh, the Jews had, had received the divinely inspired law of Moses, which told them to separate the lepers, to have them quarantined, to, to separate them. And it even got into detail about how they were to wash their clothing in boiling hot water or burn it burn their clothing, shave around the inflicted areas. Um, Even they were told to replace the stones of the lepers' homes that they had come from. You know, replace the stones or, uh, or even scrape the plaster of the walls. And the law, the law of, of Moses before science and medicine even discovered these things was really telling the Jewish people about the truth of germs and the need for sanitation and um, the importance of isolating the inflicted. See, they know now, medicine has discovered, that leprosy is passed even through the air. So that's why there's to stay a distance. And if the wind was blowing, to keep their distance and to cover their mouths. Isn't that amazing? What does that tell us? God's word is God's word. Men didn't know that. God knew that. Of course, he knew all about germs and bacteria and all that sort of thing because... He's the creator. So it's just one more proof of the divine inspiration of the scripture and how God helped to protect and uh, preserve his people. So anyway, back to our account. As the Lord was about to enter a certain village, a group of ten lepers who stood afar off because they were not allowed to go into the village lifted their weak voices together. And what did they cry out? Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. That's verse 13. Now, the word the lepers used for master is not the word rabbi, teacher. It's the Greek word epistata. And it's not found very often, um, but it, it means chief commander. You see, they recognized that he was the famous Jesus that they'd been hearing about for three and a half years now. Um, I'm sure he was followed with his, by his disciples, you know, and probably a crowd of people. So they, they recognized that this is the Jesus they'd heard so much about. And uh, very wisely, they appealed to him on the basis of his mercy. They had heard about how merciful he was to those who were down and out. And isn't that, that is wise, because the proper way to seek help from God is always to come to him via the mercy route rather than the the merit route. You know, don't appeal to him on the basis of your merit. Look what I've done. Look how great I am. (laughs) And you should help me. Appeal to him for his help on the basis of his mercy. The door to divine help is mercy, not merit. So they were wise in calling out for his mercy. And they understood he was the chief commander over disease. Um, And uh, the, the common misery, think about this too, the common misery of their disease and their outcast position had drawn these men together who probably otherwise would never have been together. One of them might have been a nobleman for all we know. One of them might have been some uppity-up social guy. And another one might have been even a beggar before he became a leper. We don't know, but they're all brought together by their common misery. We even find that one of them, at least, was a Samaritan among Jews. And remember what we learned back in John chapter 4 in the, the uh, account of the Samaritan woman out at, who met Jesus out at the well? 
we learned that the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. And yet we find here that their common woe, their common misery, had obliterated all distinction of race and religion and class. Their leprosy had caused their whole world to be divided into only two classes. You had the clean and the unclean, which is true spiritually, isn't it, as well? Because you either have the saints or the ain'ts. Got the saints and the ain'ts. You got the, you got the clean or the unclean. There's only two classes of distinction between the, regarding the souls of men. You either have the saved or the lost. Well, as this pitiful group of lepers kept their required distance, crying out to gain the Lord's attention, we're told that he saw them. It's always a good thing when the Lord sees you, isn't it? Because when he sees you, what does he have? Compassion, especially if you're asking for mercy. He always has compassion. And he desired to cleanse them. No one ever left the Lord Jesus with a disease. He never went to a funeral that was uh, not turned into a celebration. <laughs> So he, uh, he desired to cleanse them, but he also wanted to test them. So he gave them a command. He said, go show yourselves unto the priest. Now, according to law, uh, Leviticus 13 and 14 and Deuteronomy 24, the long and very involved procedure, a sacrificial ritual for the individual who truly had leprosy, had already been declared by the priest the first time around that he it did indeed have leprosy but the procedure for when that leper believed that he or she was cleansed of his leprosy was to go to the priest to receive their reconfirmation in the matter so in other words if you have a person who has been separated for seven days and the priests go in and they look at him and say yes it is leprosy and um, they're declared a leper and they have to leave and they have to go live in a leper county, uh, colony well, if that person believes that they are cleansed and they no longer have leprosy sometime later on, they are to return to the priests and the priests go through, oh my goodness, you want to read about a ritual? Woo! Read Luke, uh, Luke, Leviticus chapter 14. It's a long chapter and it is so incredibly involved. And I was reading through it. I was getting excited and I almost wanted to get diverted and teach you Luke 14 because the whole ritual points to Jesus Christ. It involves uh, the priest having to use cedar wood and scarlet and um, what's the third thing? Hyssop. Okay, cedar wood, crossed, scarlet, blood, hyssop. You know, Lord was offered vinegar on hyssop. And then... Uh, to begin with, the priest takes two birds and he puts one of the birds into an earthen vessel and then he kills it. Well, Jesus Christ came down to earth, you know, God, and put himself into an earthen vessel, became a man, and he was killed. And, um, and the earthen vis vessel is over running water. And of course, he's, he is the living water. All right, so that first bird is killed. But then the second bird in the sacrifice is... And all this takes place outside the camp, by the way. Where was Jesus crucified? Outside Jerusalem. And the second bird is let go, and it just flies away. And that's... A, see, the first bird is a picture of Christ's crucifixion. The second bird is a picture of his resurrection and his ascension. And it goes on. 
the whole chapter goes on and it talks about lambs and it's just very, very um, elaborate. But the whole ritual points to Jesus Christ who is the only one who can cleanse us from leprosy, sin. It's just beautiful. But anyway, that's what they were to do. They were to go show themselves to the priests and then the priests would go through this whole ritual. But what's interesting to think about is that there is no recorded incident that exists of this complex ritual ever having been performed. (laughs) I would think that the priests would have looked at that chapter in Luke 14 and say, what in the why in the world did the Lord put put this chapter in the Bible? We've never had to do this ritual because there is no cure for leprosy. No leper was ever cleansed other than Miriam, who was cleansed only after seven days of separation. She didn't have to go through this ritual, and I'm not sure it was even in effect at the time. Um, and the other, only other one who was ever cleansed of leprosy was Naaman, and he was a Syrian. He wouldn't have gone to the Jewish priests for this ritual to be performed. And he didn't. You know, he believed, he came to believe in God, but he didn't do the temple thing and all that. Um, So it was never performed. And then along comes Jesus Christ. And very early in his ministry up in Galilee, the leper, the first leper comes to him and he touches him and the leper is cleansed. And he says, what? He says, go show yourselves to the priests. Now that leper did, but he was also naughty, naughty. He couldn't just hold it to himself like he was told to because God said, Jesus said, and don't tell any man. Don't tell anyone. Just go to the priests and tell the priests. And the priests were the ones who were, would then announce to the nation, this is amazing. He must be the Messiah. But the man couldn't hold it in, and he went out and told everybody, spread it abroad, and then poor Jesus was surrounded by so many people that he couldn't, you know, he had to go out into the wilderness to just get away from people. But so this, this ritual had never been performed before until, until Jesus came along. And, uh, and now, again, we find that he tells these ten to do what? Obey the law, go to the priests. He's, he wants the priests of the nation, he's still giving them opportunity to find out who he is. So he sends them on their way to the priests. And I think that this is one of the reasons why we find in the book of Acts, Acts 6-7, that after the Lord's crucifixion and his resurrection, there was a great company of the priests of Israel. I get goosebumps because I get so excited to share this good news. There was a great company of the priests who came to the faith. Amen. You know, I always look at those guys, the bad guys, but so many of them did get saved. It says a great company of them came to faith in Jesus Christ. So the ten lepers were to go to the priests to seek reclassification from unclean to clean, even though there was no tangible evidence that anything was different. The Lord had not touched them this time, nor had he even said, be thou clean, like he had with that first leper. And there was no change in them. You know, they'd look at themselves and were to go to the priest. We look, you know, we still have leprosy. They could have thought, well, this is ridiculous. Remember how proud Naaman was? Didn't want to do what Elisha told him to do. I'm not going to go dump myself in that dirty Jordan River. You know, why didn't he do something spectacular? So they might look ridiculous showing up before the priests, still having leprosy. But then they must have thought, well, what have we got to lose? (laughs) Certainly didn't have anything to lose. It was certainly worth a try. And so they all complied. And their obedience was rewarded. Blessings always follow obedience. 
because as they went, they were cleansed. Now, I don't know what happened. I don't know who noticed it first, but it must have been something. And they, by the time they were cleansed, I believe, according to the passage here, that they were out of view of Jesus. They had gone some distance to show they were really going to go to the priest, you know. And uh, I don't know if, if, if all of a sudden they noticed they could walk so much easier. They didn't have stumps for feet. Or if one of them, you know, looked over at the others and saw, my goodness, your face isn't a leper's face anymore. Your hair isn't white or, you know, whatever happened. If they looked down and saw that they had all their fingers back. But all of a sudden, every one of them knew that they were clean. And I can just imagine, this is another place, wouldn't you have liked to have been there to see all of them suddenly become whole? What is that movie? Ben-Hur. Oh, my goodness. Every time I see that movie and Jesus is on his way to the cross, right? Isn't that what happens? And his shadow goes by and um, Ben-Hur's mother and sister are lepers. And as the shadow goes by, they suddenly become totally clean of their leprosy. I can't I can't watch movies. I just go to pieces, especially movies like that. But oh. If you want to see a good movie, by the way, I, you know, I don't know if I should say this because some people don't think you should go to movies, but when there's a Christian movie out there, I'm going to go ahead and say, go see Fireproof. Oh, oh, I don't know if it's still playing. If it isn't, get the DVD when it comes out. Man, that is a powerful movie. Fireproof. Got to see it. Tell all the young married couples you know to see it. Anyway, how did I get onto that? Where was I? Ben-Hur. I was at Ben-Hur. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. So I, I don't know what happened, but all of a sudden they, they, they had to have been whooping and laughing and leaping, and they, just as fast as their feet could carry them, they must have been very eager to get to the priest so that they could get the ritual taken care of and then be restored to their families. Don't you know that's the first thing they'd want to do is go back to their families and their loved ones and return to the society of men and resume their lives? It was like really literally being restored from the dead. Talk about Lazarus. It was like a resurrection from the dead. But one of the ten did not keep going forward when he saw his miraculous cleansing. Let the others go to the priests of Israel. He would go to the priest, the one who had cleansed him, one who had cleansed him. The others might, uh, might, the priest, the other priest might declare the miracle, but he wanted to see the one who had done the miracle. He alone of the ten put his obligation to his deliverer above his desire to return to his society and his family. He turned back. And the Greek word for turn back is oftentimes a word that is used for repent. He turned his back to what? Religion and ritual. Not that he didn't eventually do it because it was part of the law. And even being a Samaritan, he did believe in the law, the first five books of of, um, Moses, the Pentateuch. But first of all, he he wanted to go to a person. He turned his back on the religion and he faced forward to a person. After all, all the religion pointed to, remember I just went through part of the ritual? The ritual pointed to a person anyway. It was just all a picture of the person, the person of Jesus Christ, the one who healed him. 
all the way back to the Lord. His praises, we find, could not be silenced. It says with a loud voice, and I love that, with a loud voice. He had his voice back. Wasn't raspy anymore. Oh, how glad I was when I got my voice back. My husband wasn't, but I was. And he glorified God. And when he got back, we are told that he no longer stood afar off. He didn't have to stand far off anymore. What did he do? He went to the very best place to be. Right. Where is the best place to be? On your face before the feet of Jesus. Just like Mary. He fell down at the feet of Jesus. It says he fell down on his face at his feet. Now whose feet? Look at verses 15 and 16. Whose feet would those be? All right. His is a possessive pronoun, pronoun, right, Joan? (laughs) Possessive pronoun. And when you want to find out whose feet they are, you have to go back to the preceding personal pronoun to find out whose feet they were. What does verse 15 say? With a loud voice, he glorified God. And whose feet did he fall down at? God's feet. He fell down and praised and worshipped God at God's feet. And the Lord Jesus accepted the man's worship. And he accepted the man's praise. He accepted the man's thankfulness. You know, if Jesus was not God, that would have been an awful thing for him to do. That would have been blasphemous for him to accept the worship and the praise and the thankfulness of this man. Even angels wouldn't accept that when men fell down at their feet. They'd say, get up, get up, don't praise me. Praise God. So Jesus here, another proof that he is who he claimed to be. He is God. Now, this one man who we are told was a Samaritan understood an obligation to a higher law than the Mosaic law. He, uh, he, he probably would not have gone to a Jewish priest. He, being a Samaritan, probably would have gone to a Samaritan priest. Now, remember, they're on the border of Galilee and Samaria, so the the Jews probably would have headed north to find a priest in Galilee, but he would have gone south into Samaria to find himself a a Samaritan priest. But um, if he had gone to a Jewish priest along with the other guys... Perhaps, and I think probably very likely, the Jewish priests would have refused to pronounce him clean. He was a Samaritan, and they had this thing going between the Samaritans and the Jews. But the Jewish priest, Jesus Christ, would not refuse to declare him clean. In fact, he alone would be able to declare the man every whit clean, inside and outside. Anyway, this Samaritan former leper put the spirit of the law above the letter of the law by first coming to Jesus with his sacrifice of praise, which pleased the Lord, don't you know, far more than the sacrifices that the other nine lepers would offer in the temple, even though they were obeying the letter of the law. What pleases him more? The sacrifices of our hearts and our, the, the sacrifices of our lips, the sacrifice of our praise. Now think of this, instead of going to a priest, the Samaritan former leper became a priest. He became a member of the priesthood of believers. <laughs> and he built his altar at the feet of the Lord Jesus. He was the outcast among outcasts, wasn't he? I mean, all lepers were outcasts, but he was an outcast even among the outcasts. 
Once they were all cleansed, I don't know, maybe the Jewish former lepers said, get away from us now. You know, all of a sudden their distinctions would come back. Um, but so because he was the most rejected of all, he was a Samaritan among Jews. And yet he was the one who was the most thankful. Isn't that so often the case that those who have been forgiven the most are the most thankful? And this is emphasized, his being an outcast is emphasized at the end of uh, verse 16, that the one giving thanks at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ was a Samaritan. And again, it's mentioned when the Lord himself looks around, he says, where are the nine? You know, none have come back to thank me. Save this uh, stranger. He calls him a stranger. And the Greek word is alochenes, which means other genes. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? He had other genes. You know, he wasn't, he was, he was a, an outsider. He was um, a stranger from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world, as it says of we Gentiles in Ephesians 2.12. But he felt his need more keenly and more deeply than the others. Because he had never known all the full promises of God. He was not a, you know, one who had the covenant promises as the Jews had. But now he knew God. He knew who God was. He fell at God's feet and his heart just broke forth to give glory to God. The fact that only one, the only one who came to, to return praise and thank the Lord was a Samaritan was really a challenge to the Jews, wasn't it? was really a rebuke to the Jews because they had great spiritual uh, privilege and opportunity compared to the Samaritans and compared to the Gentiles. And they were failing to use those advantages. Doesn't faith often show up in places where sometimes you would least expect it? It does. I mean, oftentimes, I don't know, it's just God's grace that I'm part of the family of God because you sure wouldn't expect it from from my ancestry, <laughs> when I look back, I don't know anybody in my family tree that was saved. Faith often shows up in the least likely places. I think about that, talking about the Samaritan woman at the well, that she was not only a Samaritan, she was a bad woman. She'd had how many husbands? Five husbands, and she was living with the sixth. She was an outcast, among outcasts. And uh, then think about the Roman centurion and the Syrophoenician woman. They weren't Jews, and yet they're the only man, the only woman in the Bible who Jesus ever commended for having great faith. And then you had the, <laughs> the crude, rude dude in the nude, the demoniac of Gadara. Who would ever expect him to become a vibrant witness and testimony for the Lord Jesus Christ? He'd be one of the last ones you'd ever think. And what about the people of Decapolis? And what about the people of Perea? Now, the Jews never caused the, whole, the Lord's uh, heart to, rejo his, uh, to rejoice in his spirit. But the people of Perea did. And then we had the account of the Good Samaritan. Okay, the Levite and the priest go walking right by that poor man who was beaten and robbed on the road to Jericho. But who stopped and helped him? The Good Samaritan. And here we have this Samaritan leper. Often where we least expect to find faith, it pops up. And often where we would expect to find good behavior, I mean, wouldn't you think these men would return and say thank you? You know what's missing in our society today is thankfulness. Young people, you know, they don't even—they just take everything for granted. They don't half the time don't even say thank you. Um, often where we'd expect to find good behavior, 
uh, it's too frequently not there. And sometimes strangers, allogenes, <laughs> other genes, give us kinder treatment than those even within the family of God. Hmm. You know, like a prophet is not without honor saving his own hometown. Sometimes those outside, and this is a terrible testimony on the church, but sometimes those outside the church have better manners than those inside the church. Have you found that to be true? Terrible testimony, but it's true. Uh, like the nine former Jewish lepers, Israel was more concerned obedience to the letter of the law, you know, going to the priests and going through all the rituals, etc., etc., than she was in her obedience to the spirit of the law. Jewish pride was such that it resulted in a nation of people who felt they had a right to the blessings of God because of their special relationship to him. You know, we're the chosen people. And so they just, they took their their blessings for granted. Oh, let us not do that. Let us not take our blessings. Oh, I don't know how much longer we might have the blessings of God on this nation. I don't know that we still do now, but, but don't ever take them for granted. There may be a day when we are not allowed to assemble here together like this. But whatever their reason, the nine former lepers, just as the nation of Israel, neglected their time of blessed opportunity to worship and thank Jesus, and therefore they did not receive, as did the Samaritan, his much-needed words, Thy faith hath made thee whole. He could have said that to the whole nation if she had returned to him, put her back to her religion. But she didn't. She um, could have been healed of her spiritual leprosy. Physical healing was great. I'm sure those other nine guys, you know, they were, they were happy campers. You know, they, had, they, they were healed and they could return to society. But uh, spiritual cleansing, what they missed out on, spiritual cleansing is so much greater, far greater. The other nine men may have been declared clean by the local Jewish priests, but this Samaritan was declared saved by the great high priest. What a difference. All the difference in the world. So, what is your, what is your GQ? Aren't you glad I didn't ask what your IQ was? I don't know what mine is and I don't want to know. <laughs> it would be depressing. But what is your GQ? What is your gratitude quotient? Sadly, far too often, I think we find that we are more like the nine men in this account than we are like the one Samaritan. How often do we take our blessings for granted? We do. I mean, you probably got up this morning and just took it for granted that you could drive to this church and we could have Bible study and you could fellowship with your sisters in Christ and we could open up the word of God. How often do we take our blessings for granted and fail to return to the Lord to thank him? for what he's given us. He's given us so much in this country, and we haven't been thankful, and I think that's why we're in the condition we're in. I know it is. The Christians, you know, it's the fault of the pulpits of America that we're in the condition we're in. Yeah, greed. But we're to, we're to, return, we're to return to the Lord to thank him for everything and in everything. No matter what we're going through now, we're to give him thanks for even going in it, through it. Did you know that? The Bible commands both. Thanks for everything and in everything. How often are we satisfied in enjoying the gift and forgetting the gift giver? 
Are we not prone to pray for mercy, but then neglect to praise the mercy giver? Just think how often he's been merciful to us. Do we, do we praise him for his mercy each and every day that our heart keeps beating? Do we spend more time praying for what we don't have than praising for what we do have? Think about that one for a while. Do we spend more time praying for what we don't have than praising him for what we do have? Are we known more for having a murmuring, uh-oh, and complaining spirit of discontent and dissatisfaction and needing this and needing more and wishing I wasn't with, stuck with this guy and da-da-da-da-da-da, you know? <laughs> then we are known for being a person of a thankful spirit. Just open your ears and go out there and listen to people. What do you think you hear more of? Probably nine to one, just like this story. More complaining, more grumbling, more murmuring than you do. Do you hear people walking around Walmart praising the Lord? I mean, when you do, you just almost want to fall over. <laughs> or they're just using his name as a cuss word or something, you know. In the fact that only one of ten returned to give thanks to the Lord for what he had done for him reminds us that gratefulness is not nearly as common as ungratefulness. Which tells us also that when you honor and when you praise God, you're going to be in the minority. You are going to be in the minority. Like this Samaritan, you will often find yourself alone. He was there in a group, but when, you know, at the end, he was just there all by himself at the feet of Jesus. You'll find as Jeremiah the prophet found that to be true. You know, he said that when he ate, when he read God's word, it, his word was like honey. You know, he said, thy words were found and I did eat them. He just couldn't get enough. He was digesting God's word and eating and it was like honey. And to me, it would be like chocolate. Belva's not here. I can talk about chocolate. Is she? She's not here. Okay. It's like chocolate. And uh, he said, thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. I hope you find that to be true. I get sometimes when I read God's word, I get so overfilled. I can't wait to come and spill out on you guys. It's the joy and rejoicing of my heart. And Jeremiah said that. But then the next thing he says is I sat alone. You know, there was nobody else in that whole nation who was rejoicing with him. He was alone sitting at the feet of the Lord. So often, if you praise the Lord and honor him and want to live for him, you're going to find yourself alone much of the time. Most people are just too occupied with their own little interest to give time or effort to honoring God and spending time at his feet. Is that true? I mean, we're so blessed to have a room full here, but it could be packed to overflowing if people just weren't so busy doing the mundane temporal things that don't last for eternity. Well, let's look quickly, really quickly, at the return of the Lord. And um, first of all, I want to start by look, just looking at verses 20 and 21, okay? 20 and 21, where the Pharisees pop up again. Isn't it amazing how ubiquitous they are? Everywhere, everywhere Jesus goes, there's Pharisees that appear. It says in verse 20, And when he was demanded... Of the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God should come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation. 
Neither shall they say, Lo here or lo there, for behold, the kingdom of God is within you. Let me stop right there for now. The religious establishment of Israel was looking for, as we know, a visible, material kingdom to be established on earth with a Jewish militant Messiah who would smash the power of Rome and establish a new empire with Jerusalem at its center and with them, the religious rulers, as co-rulers with the Messiah. Especially as time now was growing closer to the Passover when the Jewish people were annually reminded of their deliverance by Moses from the Egyptians, would this particular group of Pharisees think that it was a good time for them to demand of him a date for the kingdom of God? Can you imagine demanding anything of God? Of course, that shows they really didn't believe he was who he claimed to be. But they're demanding in their snobbish arrogance a date for when the kingdom of God would come. And behind this demand question of theirs was the implication that if he really was who he was claiming to be, then why didn't he just prove it once and for all by establishing his kingdom? You know, overthrowing Rome and setting up the kingdom of God right then and there. And what better time to do it than at the time of the Passover? And he was probably, like I said, with a a group of Galilean pilgrims. And he had his disciples. We know when he did enter into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, there was a whole multitude of people coming with him. So they thought, this is a great time. Um, If you're who you say you are, what's the date? And asking about the kingdom was a legitimate question because John the Baptist and Jesus, when they came preaching, what did they preach? Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. So this is a legitimate question, but it was also very tragic in that he had been ministering among these rulers now for some three years, more than three years, and they were still totally in spiritual darkness. Their views of the kingdom were still completely political and uh, not spiritual, and their view was strictly Jewish not universal. They thought the kingdom was just going to be for them, the Jews, wasn't going to be universal, but they would get to rule over the rest of the world. But um, they didn't, they still did not have a clue who he was, and they were, they were asking this really to try to trip him up. Now, the Lord did give them an answer. He did not give them a date. He didn't say it will be October 21st. (laughs) Is that today's date? Uh, He didn't give them a date. But he did give them an answer, and it was an adequate answer. If they really had ears to hear what he said to them, it was more than adequate. But as we know, they don't have ears to hear him. And so he really gives the rest of his answer to his disciples, as we'll see in the rest of the chapter. He goes alone somewhere with his disciples, and he gives the full answer. He doesn't really give a date, but he gives much more detail than he gives to to the Pharisees. But what does he say to the Pharisees? He says, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation, neither shall they say, Lo here or lo there, for behold, the kingdom of God is within you. Now that statement has been declared by by many within Christendom to mean that the kingdom of God is not to be a literal kingdom. They'll take this and they'll say, no, there's not going to be a literal 1,000-year kingdom. You know, when the Lord returns at the end of, at the, end of the tribulation, which is what we teach, um, that there'll be a literal kingdom for 1,000 years and he will reign as king of kings and lord of lords, etc., etc. They said, no, you have, to, uh, you have to just spiritualize away the kingdom. The kingdom is just within us. It's not anything that's going to be observable. But <laughs> they failed to look a few more verses down. Look at verse 24. 
A major problem with taking that interpretation is that Jesus, when he turns to talk to his men about his return, very clearly states that his coming to establish his kingdom will be so observable that it will be like lightning shining from one part of the heavens, the atmospheric heavens, to the other part. I mean, it's just going to be, everybody's going to be able to see it. And if that isn't enough to show, you go over to, you don't have to now, I'll just tell you what it says, but one day, I'm going to go through the rest of this chapter really, really quickly because one day in the future we're going to be talking about the Olivet Discourse where he says all this stuff over again and we'll get into it in a lot more detail. But over in Matthew 24:27, the Lord repeated this statement that the return of the Son of Man will be as lightning coming out of the east, shining even to the west, and he said these words. He said, and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven before he comes... Now, this is not talking about the rapture of the church. This is talking about his return to earth, the second part of the second coming, which will be right before the millennial kingdom. There's going to be a sign in the heaven right before he comes. And I believe that sign is going to be the Shekinah glory. But um, we'll talk, talk about that when we get to Matthew 24. But he says, The sign of the Son of Man shall appear in the heaven, and then, here's what he says, Then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the, man, the Son of Man coming in the clouds of, he, of heaven with power and great glory. Does that sound like it's going to be observable? All the tribes of the earth are going to see him. Everyone on earth is going to see him, and they're going to mourn. Uh-oh. Judgment's here. Here he comes. And if that still isn't enough, we have Revelation 1-7, which tells us that every eye shall see him. Every eye shall see him. It's going to be observable. So we need to really understand, once again, I have to take you into the Greek, uh, we need to know what the Lord meant when he said to the Pharisees. And remember, when you pull a scripture out of the Bible, you have to look at the context. Who is he talking to? The Pharisees. He's not talking yet to his disciples when he says the kingdom is within you. He's talking to Pharisees. And when he says the kingdom will not come with observation. Okay, we have to understand what the Greek word means for observation. This is the only time in the New Testament that this noun is found. Observation is a noun. (laughs) But it is found six times in its verb form to observe or to watch. And in every one of those six times that this word appears in the New Testament in its verb form, it refers to an observation with an evil intent, with a spying kind of way, in a spying kind of way. For example, one of the times it is found is when Simon the Pharisee and his peers were observing and watching Jesus. Remember when Simon invited Jesus to his house for, for Sabbath dinner? And they were all watching him with evil motive and intent. They wanted to see him do something wrong. And then, of course, when that woman came in, you know, that outcast woman came in and anointed his feet with her tears and you know they they thought they had found what they needed um and another place it's used is when they watched the lord on the sabbath day when they were in the synagogue and they brought in that man with the withered arm and they were watching him they were observing him to see is he going to heal him on the sabbath so we can get catch him get him <laughs> so in every in every case that's how it's used uh, the kingdom of God in other words would not come to those who were watching for it critically 
like the Pharisees were doing even then here in Luke 17, basically looking again for a way they thought they could ensnare Jesus. You know, you, you say you're the Messiah. OK, give us the kingdom. They thought they could ensnare him because they didn't believe he was the Messiah and they didn't believe he could establish the kingdom. And notice, too, it says uh, that, that it will not come with just a localized effect. You know, don't look for it here and don't look for it there. Oh, we've got the kingdom. What do they call the Jehovah's Witnesses? The, the kingdom halls, you know. We're the ones, we, this little group has found the kingdom over here. That little group, uh, he says, don't, when it, because when it comes, it's not going to just have a localized effect. When it comes, nobody's going to have any doubt about the fact that the kingdom of God is here on planet Earth. Furthermore, he went on to tell them that the kingdom of God was in their midst. Okay, look at the words, is within you. And this is where we really need to understand the term within you. Obviously, again, remember who he's talking to. Obviously, the kingdom of God did not exist within the, the Pharisees to whom he was speaking. In just a short time from here, he's going to be calling them whited sepulchers and hypocrites. The kingdom of God did not live within the Pharisees. The Greek words that are used for within you are entos imon. And that doesn't mean anything to you, does it? <laughs> but entos is a word that is, uh, whenever it is used in the plural, which it is here, entos, it always means in the midst of, and imon means a group. Of people, not just in the midst of an individual. It means in the midst of a group of people. It means that the kingdom was within their reach because the king of the kingdom was in their very midst. So you see what he's saying? Not the kingdom of God is within you guys. They were totally lost and unsaved. He was saying the kingdom of God was is within your midst because who was in the midst of them? Him. You know, he, they could have had the kingdom. He could have given them a date if they had accepted him as the religious rulers of the nation. Uh, they could have had the kingdom right then and there. But they, the Pharisees could not experience the kingdom of God within them spiritually or literally observe it from without as long as they continue to reject the king. So it was their critical denial of the king that made their date demand for the kingdom not possible. Do you follow me? Okay, all right. What I want to do now is in, in five minutes is read the rest of the, the, uh, the chapter and maybe highlight something here and there as I read through it. But uh, don't get frustrated because you can read the rest of it in your books. I get into more detail and then we'll just wait to really fully develop all that he says when we do get to the Olivet Discourse, which probably won't be for a year or two. And anyway... <laughs> Four days, yeah, from God's from God's timetable. There's a couple couple days. All right, let's look at uh, starting at verse 22. And he said unto his the disciples. Now he's alone, just with his men, and this is what he says to them: The days will come when ye shall desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and ye shall not see it. He's saying that's a prophecy, really. He's saying you guys are going to want to see. You know, you're going to wish that you could see. One of, one of the days that you had with me or the return of the Son of Man. You'll wish you could see that, but you're not going to be able to see that. So he's kind of really predicting it's going to be you know, a long time off. Um, and, and they even thought when he was ascending into heaven that, that they would maybe see it, 
they couldn't they didn't remember what he said here because they said well it will, will it be at this time lord that you're going to establish the kingdom i think they thought he was going to go up and then maybe come right back down and establish the kingdom but he's telling them ahead of time you're not going to see now one of them did get to see his coming again through a vision and who was that john but uh, not in reality until until the end but anyway um and then he says verse 23 and they shall say to you see here or see there go not after them nor follow them what he's saying here again is that his return is not going to be a localized event you know all these poor people who follow these cult leaders and do the dumbest things and say, oh, he's the Messiah. He's, he's Jesus Christ returned. There have been so many over the years. All they had to do was look at this verse and say, it's not going to be a localized little thing when I come back. So if one little group says, oh, here he is, baloney. When he comes back, every eye will see him. It's going to be like lightning. This is not the rapture. Because when the rapture happens, we're just out of here. The Lord doesn't, I mean, the world doesn't see. Uh, lightning flashing in the sky and all that. We're just gone. And they don't know. They scratch their heads and they can't figure out what's going on. But this is talking about the return of the Lord after the tribulation. Anybody who says we found the Messiah, like the, you know, a couple years ago was it David Koresh and then there was Jim Jones and there's always these awful things going on out in uh, Utah, wherever they are. And there was Menachem, what was his name? Menachem, something or other the Jews thought was the Messiah. Don't believe it. It's just a bunch of baloney. When he comes, every I will see him and know. All right, let's see. Four, then he says, For as the lightning that light, lighteneth out of the one part under heaven shineth unto the other part under heaven, so shall also the Son of Man be in his day. But first, here's another prophecy, but first, he's telling his men, must he suffer many things and be rejected of this generation. That's another prophecy of his upcoming suffering and crucifixion. This generation would reject him. He knew that ahead of time. And then he says, And as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it also be in the days of the Son of Man. What did they do in the days of Noah? They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. You know what? If you do not believe in Noah and Noah's ark and the little animals that came in pairs into Noah's ark and a flood that covered the whole world and destroyed them all, then throw out Jesus too. Because he did. And he says it right here. He believed in Noah and a worldwide flood. He says it destroyed them all. And he's saying here, you know, when I come, it's just going to be like in the days of Noah. They're going to be on their regular routine doing all the things that people do in this world and pay no attention whatsoever to the signs of God or the preaching of God's people. Noah preached for 120 years that judgment was coming. And when all was said and done, only his own family believed him and got into the ark. Those people had his preaching. They had signs. What signs did they have that the judgment was coming? Well, wouldn't you wonder about animals coming from all over the world in pairs and getting into Noah's ark? Wouldn't that be a little suspicious that something might be about to happen? (laughs) I think it would, you know, two giraffes coming along, (laughs) two elephants and dinosaurs and all the rest of it. And Noah didn't get them. They came on their own. God, you know, if he can put fish into nets, he can tell the animals. He gives them their natural instincts. He told them to go and get in the ark. That would have been a, I think I would have gotten a little suspicious. Then the other sign they had was Methuselah. Methuselah was the man who lived the longest ever. 
How many years did he live? I knew, I, I knew. 969 years, and that was um, to show God's long-suffering. He gave the world 969 years of a sign, and it was in Methuselah's name. Methuselah in Hebrew means when he dies, it will come. When he dies, it will come. You know the year Methuselah died? What came? The flood. And they, for the last 120 years of Methuselah's life, they had Noah to tell them what the it was. The flood. But they ignored all the signs, just like in the days of the tribulation, the people will be going on and ignoring all the signs that God will be giving them. Just think they're going to go through the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the bowl judgments, ignore them all, and be totally unprepared spiritually for him when he does come. And he says, likewise, also as it was in the days of Lot. They did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they builded. But the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, and it, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even thus shall it be in the days when the Son of Man is revealed. That again tells us it's not the rapture we're talking about here. The Son of Man will not be revealed to the world at the rapture. He will be revealed to the world at the, his return at the end of the seven years of tribulation. Again, if you don't believe that Sodom and Gomorrah were literally destroyed by fire and brimstone and that Lot's wife was turned into a pillar of salt, throw out Jesus because he believed all that. Again, the people were just going on their merry, sinful way, totally ignoring all, all the warnings. Lot, as sorry as a testimony as he was, he did tell them that judgment was coming and they didn't listen. Um, in that day he which shall be upon the housetops and his stuff in the house, let him not come down to take it away. And he that is in the field, let him take likewise not return back. Now that's again not the rapture. You know what, the rapture isn't going to matter, ladies, if you're on your housetop or not. <laughs> you don't have to get up there. and <laughs> He'll take you even if you're six feet under. He's going to take you. No, no problem where you are. He's saying, you know, when you see the sign of the Son of Man coming, don't go, don't go back in your house to get all your little goodies together. <laughs> get your gold and your... <laughs> he says, uh, get yourself right quick with God, if, if at all possible. And then he says, this could be a whole sermon on its own, remember Lot's wife. Where was Lot's wife's heart still in this old world? Her heart was back in Sodom, and she uh, was taken in judgment. Whosoever, he says, whosoever shall seek to save his life shall lose it. Those in the tribulation who seek to save their life and take the mark of the beast and uh, don't believe in Christ, you know, they're going to lose their life. And whosoever shall lose his life shall preserve it. Those who do come to faith in the Lord, they're probably, many of them, most of them will lose their lives, but in doing so, they will really gain them, won't they? And then he says in verse 34, and this does remind me indeed of Lot's day in Sodom. He says, I tell you, in that night there shall be two men in one bed. Hmm. <laughs> that, sounds, that sounds like today. <laughs> I think we are in the days of Lot. Uh, no, really, I, I got curious about that. I thought, whoa. <laughs> and if you notice, the word men is in italics. You know what that means? It's not in the original. I don't know what those King James guys were up to, but um, 
that word should it just should be really two the only word that is there is there shall be two in one bed and I like to take it there will be two people in one bed but who knows when he comes generic yeah generic anyway it's all right the one shall be taken and the other shall be left okay that's at night right in that night and then he says two women shall be grinding together the one shall be taken the other left and two men shall be in the field one shall be taken the other left that's day okay when the women are grinding and the men are in the field you have to do that in the daylight so while the men are in the bed it's night the people are in the bed it's night and when the others are you know out in the field and grinding it's day so what does that tell you the lord knew before the world ever discovered it that the world is round you know when he comes back It'll be night in part of the world and it'll be day in the other part of the world. Now, the world didn't know that for a long time after Jesus came. They thought the world was flat. And so, again, this proves the divine inspiration of Scripture. Now, here, those who are, you will hear this passage used to speak of the rapture of the church, but it isn't. This is talking about the return. Now, at the rapture, those who are taken are the ones who are taken up into heaven. And the ones who are left are the ones who go through the tribulation. But this is speaking about the Lord's return after the tribulation. And in that case, those who are, um, the ones who are taken are the ones who are taken in judgment. They're the ones who are destroyed at when he comes, you know, in the sword of his mouth and they're destroyed, the battle of Armageddon and, the, and there's the judgment of the sheep and the goats and all that. The, the ones who are taken, we've just been talking about judgment, you know, Noah's day, Lot's day. Those who are taken are taken in judgment. Those who are left are going to be those who are left on earth and go into the millennial kingdom. And we'll develop this more when we get into the Olivet Discourse, but um, that's... That's what it's speaking of here. And, and a part of the proof for that is that it says uh, that the, the disciples asked him a question after he said that. They said, where, where, Lord, where are they going to be taken? Where are those who are taken, taken? And he said unto them, wheresoever the body is, and the, and the literal word there is carcass. Wheresoever the carcass is, thither will the eagles and the same Greek word can be used for eagles or vultures. Where the carcass is, thither will the eagles or the vultures be gathered together. So in other words, again, that's saying those who are taken, those who are taken in judgment, their bodies will be on the ground and the birds of prey will come and suck their blood, it says in Job 30, 39, and eat their flesh. And you can read about that also in the Olivet Discourse and also in Revelation 19 verses 17 to 21. All right, that was just a quick overview.